Welcome to the Make Life Less Difficult podcast. This podcast explores what it means to make life less difficult for each other and for ourselves. We share stories of struggles and successes because we believe sharing our stories eases the difficulty of life. I'm Lisa Tilstra, your host. Let's jump into today's conversation. My guest today is Erin Jean Ward. Erin Jean is a priest, spiritual director, recovery coach, writer, and speaker. She's the author of the book, Sober Spirituality, The Joy of a Mindful Relationship with Alcohol, which will be coming out in April of 2023. Erin Jean and I connected through Ariane Rice, who has been a guest on the podcast two times, episodes 17 and 49. Ariane connected Erin Jean and I, after listening to Emily Cornell's story on episode 54, it brings me a great amount of joy to experience these growing connections. Arianne, Emily, thank you for being part of this podcast experience, for listening to each other's stories, for connecting. I, I know neither of you had any idea how this connection would open up the door to this conversation, but I just am so grateful and want to acknowledge the the growing network and and connection. So in our conversation today, Erin Jean beautifully shares pieces of her journey and relationship with alcohol and how her personal experience has led her to focus her work on mindfulness around alcohol. There's a lot of complexity around the topic of alcohol, the effects of its consumption, and not a lot of conversation about it all. So I love how Erin Jean's exploration of mindfulness with our relationship with alcohol opens the door to a broader conversation. I grew up in an environment where alcohol was deemed bad. The lack of nuance ended any conversation before it had a chance to begin. Opening the conversation is much more useful and interesting in my opinion. And I find it helpful in sorting out the pros and cons, the consequences and personal desires around not just alcohol, but any number of subjects that that also can be difficult to talk about. So I am grateful for this conversation and I hope it gives you new perspectives and opens the door to new conversations in your life. You can explore Erin Jean's offerings around recovery coaching, spiritual direction and more on her website, which is linked in the show notes, along with her social media sites. She also has a Substack, Gathering the Inklings, which includes free weekly posts and a private community. Erin Jean, thank you so much for connecting, for sharing these pieces of your story, and for your wisdom and inspiration. And if you are listening, please keep in mind, if you're open to sharing your story, or would like to re- recommend someone for the podcast, I would absolutely love to hear from you. Erin Jean, welcome to the Make Life Less Difficult podcast. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. I am really excited to have you as well. And you are one of the people that I have no previous history with before this podcast and being connected through Ariane Rice. And this, I, I just have to take a moment, Erin Jean, to tell you this really warms my heart because this was what I hoped would happen when I started this podcast. Like I knew people that I wanted to have on, but then I really hoped that I would meet random people from around the world. Not that you're at all random, uh, but you were one of those people that our paths may have never crossed if it wasn't for this podcast. So I feel really grateful. I am overwhelmed with gratitude. I'm also quite random. So okay. it is okay <laughs> to stand about me. <laughs> so um, I think you're right. I think I've had this whole lifetime of like meeting people that I quote shouldn't have ever met, if that mm-hmm. makes sense. And I think those are really, really beautiful bonds. I mean, we met over a Zoom through Ariane. But I, I would say like very quickly fell into talking as if we'd had 30 conversations before. And I think there's something really beautiful about that. Also being across the seas and in different time zones and yet um, right here in the same moment. I just think it's beautiful. Yes, it is. So as we jump in, I have built this work out of the quote by Marianne Evans. What do we live for if not to make life less difficult for each other? And 
I would love to hear what does that mean to you? What do we live for is not to make life less difficult. I mean, my first thought when I encountered the idea of making life less difficult, I thought, sign me up. <laughs> I, um, I feel overwhelmed right now. It's probably the term I would say with the difficulties of life mm-hmm. and their immense presence. And, you know, I feel very moved to maybe first say, in order for us to make life less difficult, we have to destigmatize the difficulty. Mm. Because I spend a lot of time personally, you know, feeling ashamed of things that are difficult for me. And that isn't helping make life less difficult. If anything, it is compounding that difficulty. And that has really led me into, you know, in a variety of different ways, a vocation of saying, maybe first we destigmatize the difficulty. We acknowledge the reality of human suffering. We look into these difficulties and name the different systems and realities that are causing those to be. And then ask ourselves the question of what is in my power to make life less difficult? And then how do I cope with the things that are out? Side of my power, and then also to your to your first question of, and then how do I not keep that selfishly insular? How do I say the ways that I destigmatize that for myself, the ways that I have tried to offer my self care? How do I then offer that into the world? Because at the heart of that is healing, yes. and um, what purpose do I have in healing? But to then try to offer healing to everyone else to kind of build off of that quote. Mm, there's so much in what you shared. I, I would love to just ask you, what what is your perspective about why we stigmatize the difficult? And and I have people that push back on this quote because they don't like the word difficult. They want to go to easy. They want to focus on the positive. And and I get that and I respect that and I and I I love the positive psychology and all of that. And I'm just like, and you know what? Sometimes life is really difficult. So, I mean, what's your perspective of why why it is stigmatized and why people push back on it? Yeah, I'll tell you straight up. Uh, I'm I'm almost averse to the positivity. I go much more into the reality of pain. I feel like pain points are just real, and I think that the, the core of that is that this is just reality. I mean, I get the desire to turn that into something positive, but like when I was in the world, it's hard out here. Like, I don't know how else to just start than to name the reality that it is in fact difficult. Yeah. And I, I actually joke because I, when I was, when I was getting sober, cause I'm a recovery coach and I'm sober, um, I was in, I was doing this course and it was about, you know, waking up in the morning and saying a really positive mantra to yourself. And I mean, I rolled my eyes so hard you could hear it. Like I just was not having any of this funny business. Like I was like, where's the action point? You know, I don't know. I just did really disempowered that idea of, of helping myself through that. And but I did it because, you know, we're all just trying to heal. And I was like, whatever, I'll try this, but it's stupid. And I always say it was bullshit until it worked because I really did think it was bullshit. And then I would, I would start doing it. And I remember having this day, I've been doing it for weeks. I remember having this day where something negative happened and the voice in my head said the mantra. And I was like, oh, this sucks because it worked. You know what I mean? Like I was disappointed <laughs> that it was because yes. I was like, this has torn down my theory that this is stupid. Um, so that's how I feel about positive psychology. And I, I, I do encourage it because I think that the way that we speak to ourselves um, does create sort of um, the, the, the state of our heart and the state of how we function toward ourselves and then toward others. And also I don't, I don't start there and I don't think it is a fix all. Mm. Um, positive mindset is very important. It does not change the systemic issues of our culture that keep certain people in power and keep other people on the edges of poverty and illness and despair. So mm. it's a mix for me, right? And I think when you talk about the 
stigmatization, you asked a really important question, which is like, why do we stigmatize this? Like, what is the thing behind it? And I think, you know, the, the structures at play that I mentioned, you know, power, class, et cetera, is certainly part of it. But I also think we, we have a profound negativity towards the reality, right? We don't want to face it because we're in it and it's affecting us. But for some people, you know, for some people, they don't want to face it because they're participating in the challenge, mm-hmm. right? I think of myself and the ways that I, you know, as a white woman have participated in things that have hurt other people. And so I certainly am not going to wake up in the morning and be like, I want to face that. Yeah. And yet, I need to. Yeah. And part of it, I think, is like our own guilt and conviction is why we would rather just other that, just mm-hmm. put it in a whole other category and not touch it with a 10-foot pole because of what it might force us to reckon with. And yet, what I learned through sobriety is um, those things that we're pushing away because we're afraid they're going to, you know, attack us and eat us whole, they actually tend to hold the wisdom that could save us, right? That tends to hold actually the power of healing. And I keep using healing because in my mind, when I hear, how do you make life less difficult? I hear, how do we make life a healing salve for the difficulty. Yeah, it's beautiful. It's really beautiful. And and something that has come up um, on the podcast with multiple guests is the the saying, you know, hurt people hurt people, but healed people heal people. And I think that's so important for us to realize because we each, there's an individual journey of healing and there's a collective journey of healing. And I think it's, it is a bit of a difficult journey. Yes. I would like to to push back a little bit on the healing, uh, hurt people, hurt people. Mm. Um, because I know the heart behind the quote, and yet there are a lot of hurting people who aren't hurting people. Yeah, that's a good, um, good point. There are a lot of people suffering who are still managing to show love into the world. I think about the fact that one of the things we know is that people in poverty, people who struggle with homelessness are more generous Mm. than other people, right? These are people that by that definition should just be, in my opinion, understandably hateful, Mm. right? Like I I get it if they would be mad. And yet what we know is that their their struggle actually gave them the capacity out of which to, to show an empathy mm. that wealth can't show. It's an empathy that says, I know what it's like to be hungry. I know what it's like to be in a situation. And I know what it was like when someone else loves me. And so I'm going to try to offer that to another person. And in my work of sobriety, uh, I think, you know, when I look into the people that I'm working with who are by and large hurt people, uh, they're not necessarily people taking that hurt out on other people. They are people desperate to heal and people who were placed in situations that were deeply worthy of their coping. Mm. And for the most part, they are people who are dealing with trauma that is not in any way, shape or form their fault. Um, They are hurting from something that is exterior, that has come in and changed their lives and they are just seeking healing. And a lot of people who are, quote, not hurt people do wield violence and do mm-hmm. negative things. And so, um, again, I honor the sentiment behind that because there is a beauty in how healing calls us into deeper healing because we've been profoundly moved by our healing. And so I've, healing, heal people, heal people. I love that part of it. Yeah. I just have a tenderness in my heart as a person who spends a lot of time with hurt people for defending their honor in the sense that that hurt does not necessarily become a greater uh, perpetuating of hurt. Yeah. No, I appreciate you sharing that perspective and it's really important and to step back and, and keep that larger perspective in mind. So thank you very much for sharing that. Erin Jean, you've mentioned a couple of times being sober, being a sobriety coach, and I'd love maybe just tell, share briefly what you do now. And then I'd love to ask you about your journey of how did you get here? So say a little bit in your own words, what you do. Yes. What a question. Um, I, I'm like, how much time do we have? <laughs> um, 
So I, uh, so right now I uh, had my own practice. I uh, am a spiritual director because I have a history with ordination in the Episcopal Church, and I still hold that. So I'm a priest in the Episcopal Church, and I um, currently uh, show that ministry primarily for spiritual direction. And I'm also a recovery coach, so I work with people who want to change their relationship with alcohol in any way. And I say that really, really clearly because um, often I think we typify recovery coaching as a person gets to a point and says, I don't want to drink anymore. I want a coach to help me with that. And I take a different approach with people who work with me in the sense that um, you may not know what you want your relationship with alcohol to be. You may not have right now in this moment a desire for sobriety, but you might have an inkling or you, you definitely do have an inkling if you're seeking me out, but you don't like how you're drinking and you want it to be different. And so we work through an intuitive process week by week of asking the question, trying different things, seeing what sticks in order to get the individual to a place where they have changed their relationship with alcohol. That might not necessarily mean they don't drink anymore, but they're in a place where it has been possibly like removed as a coping mechanism, or they are no longer having experiences in which they do things they don't remember, right? We're just getting them into a more mindful and a more positive and um, a reduced harm state with the way that they drink. And in addition to that, I have a course that I put together. It's currently going through a little bit, a couple of shifts, but it is called Discerning Sobriety. And it is a course that leads participants through spiritual discernment practices so that they can ask the question, how am I in relationship with alcohol? Is this serving me? Um, and gently leading them through these spiritual exercises for them to put the finger on the pulse of that part of their lives. And it's a lot. I, I have pieced together a career. So I've got a, lot, a couple other things that I do right now. Um, I just finished my first book, which I'm really excited about. Fantastic. Sober Spirituality. It's a, a, the joy of a mindful relationship with alcohol. And so it digs into really the spiritual aspect of it, naming the challenge and calling us into um, a real wholeness in mind, body, and soul, both within ourselves and in our communities. And with that, I'm hoping to do, I'd be speaking and retreat leading and things of that nature. Okay. So how did you get here? Where, where, wherever it makes sense for you to jump into your story, how did you get here to this point? Yeah. I mean, it's an interesting question because I could say I was born on February 9th, 1987. Uh, but I, I guess I would probably start within the priesthood. I mean, I, um, was a very young priest. I, I finished college and went directly to seminary. So in the Episcopal Church, we have canons, which is like kind of the law of the church, like what is possible. Um, and the canonical age that you can be, the youngest age you can be is 24. And so I was ordained a deacon at 24 okay. and at least at 25. And um, that means I was in seminary from the ages of 22 to 25 like I was very young in seminary um really great experience for me in some ways and then graduated from seminary and started my first job as a priest at the age of 25 and um worked in churches for seven and a half years and did various jobs I I held three jobs with me the church in those seven and a half years and throughout that time had different different relationships with alcohol, right? Had a very social relationship with alcohol, but was also in a context where there's a lot of social things. So it was still relatively heavy drinking, but in a social context. And then um, had an experience of trauma that was really difficult for me and was not able at the time to locate this. But I, I see now that my drinking exacerbated because of the ways in which I was, was dealing with with trauma, I was coping with it in ways that felt accessible and possible for me. Mm. Also in a, in a very stressful situation, like in other parts of my life, it was very stressful and um, ended up going through a couple of years, I would say, of just sober curiosity, but that very much, um, when I was talking about that 10 foot pole, 
that thing we don't really want to poke. I would say a year of it was that, like me being like, I think I should, maybe not. You know, I was just like very like, this seems possible, like something I should dig into. And I think absolutely not, because it felt really scary. And uh, part of that is because of the stigmatization we put around the fact that we may not like how we drink. And then um, slowly but surely, you know, a really close friend of mine said, I quit drinking. And I thought, oh, no, you're like me. You know, you have these images of like what it means to, quote, have a problem. Mm. And I didn't live in them, really. Like I did have these negative drinking experiences, but I had a really good job. I was moving up in my career. Um, you know, I just I was doing on the exterior side pretty well, especially for my age. Um, so it was hard to really look into it and say, oh, I've hit rock bottom because I don't think I did. And yet running, you know, alongside that was the fact that I didn't like how I drank. Hmm. So seeing someone say, yeah, I quit drinking and me thinking, oh, but you didn't hit rock bottom either. Hmm. So now I, it's an invitation for me to say that's no longer required in order for me to start looking into this. And so I started, you know, kind of reading books. I always say I read the big book with a box of Chardonnay because I had not quit and I really didn't know how, but I was like, I'm going to just start. I'm just going to read a book. I have an English degree. I can read a book, right? Like I was like, this is the, the most accessible and possible that step. And I continued to drink, you know, but then would go home and read sobriety books because I just didn't know what to do and I didn't know how to move forward. And then in the midst of all of it, you know, tried a couple of times. I think I talk all the time about how I would like wake up in the morning and say, I'm not going to drink today. And then by 5 p.m., you know, you're stressed, you're depleted, you're tired. Someone says, do you want to go out for drinks? And you say, yes, because you're seeking connection. You know, you're seeking friendship. And this is the only way that you, you know how to have those things. Yeah. But then I would do stints. Like I would do uh, whole 30. I call it whole 28. Okay. Because there was a party on the 29th. So I did very well for 28 days. I actually went to one party and didn't drink. And then when the other party came around, I was like, 28 is fine by me. You know, I've done my part. Uh, and then like I did Lent. Like I gave it up for Lent. It was a treat. And I was like, this will be a thing. But always kind of at the outset was like, and then I'll just never drink again. And then it came to an end and I was like, or I will drink right now. <laughs> like it just never stuck. Uh, but still, those were all movements and separate curiosity for me and trying to figure out my relationship with alcohol. And um, I finally got a, a job in a, a small town in Oklahoma, beautiful church, lovely congregation. Even there, went back and forth, tried to, to sustain sobriety, got to almost two months. And then I was invited to go out to dinner and I was so lonely and I just did not know how to have those connections without alcohol. But I had really, in a lot of ways, changed my relationship with alcohol. I never went back to keeping alcohol in the house. I'd already taken that out. So I was essentially just a social drinker, but I was a social drinker for about six months. And I think it was six months. Point being, I even there went back and forth, but then, you know, quit, I would say, for good while I was in that context in, in Oklahoma. And from there... It had such an interesting path because I always swore I'd never talk about it. Like I would be like, God, we have one deal. Here's mm. the deal. I don't have to talk about it. Oh, interesting. God laughed at me, obviously, as I'm here <laughs> doing this with you. Um, because what happened is I, I wasn't really going to talk about it. I, I was maybe four four months sober and I was um, invited to preach uh, a service for all the clergy in the Diocese of Oklahoma. Oh, wow. And it happens every year. It's just once a year is a big honor, I felt like, to be asked to preach it. Yes. And I was like, okay, I'm going to preach the service. And between the invitation to preach and getting into the pulpit, multiple priests I knew had been removed from their vocations because of um, challenges with substances. Wow. Yeah. And I just had this moment and I was like, oh man, this is happening in my life. And the question in front of me is what would I say to a room full of clergy? Wow. And I wrote two sermons. They were awful, awful. They were like, what's your dictionary? Like, like the worst 
thing in the world that a writer could ever put in front of people. And then I wrote the third sermon and, and it fell out of me. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? I mean, I often say, like, I don't know if I wrote that sermon or it wrote me. Mm-hmm. And it fell out of me. And it was a sermon in which I, I said, you know, I'm sober and this has been a big deal for me and it's been healing for me. And, and you know, you can be curious about it. But it was, you know, the first time I ever talked about my sobriety was in a cathedral pulpit. Talk about oh, vulnerability. Yeah. And it was the the hardest best sermon I could ever preach in my entire life. Oh, I, uh, I refer to it as a sermon that changed my life because you know with the stigmatization, I really wanted to tell my story on my own terms, and so mm-hmm. I decided I didn't want there to be like whispers, you know how people talk, and so I was like, I'm gonna preach the sermon, and I'm gonna go to a coffee shop, and I'm gonna put it on all my social media. I'm gonna just put it out everywhere because I want to tell my story in my own terms. Mm. Um, because my story is a story of teaching joy mm. and, um, you know, the, the big clincher for me it was that I had, had gotten to a point of, you know, negativity. I didn't love my life. And so I was also super curious, but I was really just like, why don't I like my life? And I got a sheet of paper to make a list as I want to do. And I made a list and it was like, just a dream list. It was like, what are the things that you could imagine yourself being in your fullness and in your joy and your hope? What would that list contain? And I just wrote it out. And it was, it was still not, I shouldn't say silly things. It was things like, you know, feel good in my body, feel sexy, you know, love my career, um, have a healthy relationship, right? So I'm writing all this down, write a book, right? Like I'm writing all this mm-hmm. down and I look into it. And in the way that I would say that the Holy Spirit speaks to me, I thought, I think this is on the other side of sobriety. And that was what changed, right? That was the shift for me, is that it had become about my joy and my wholeness and my health. I tried to quit a million times by waking up in the morning and hating that. I tried to quit a million times by waking up in the morning and looking into my bank account and looking into my text messages and thinking, you're a piece of garbage, you need to quit drinking. And it never worked, Mm. never once. And the second that the reason I wanted to quit was because I wanted to love myself and have a deeper connection with God and my life. That was when things shifted for me. And I wanted that to be at the center of what people got from my story, that you don't have to hit this negative place where your life is, where you feel like your life is is at rock bottom. Some people do. I'm not shaming that experience at all. But like, you can also just want better for yourself. Mm. you can just want to make life less difficult for yourself. And so I went to these coffee shops, to this coffee shop, and I put it all on my socials. And then I had to drive for an hour and a half, which is good because I wasn't like surveying that. Um, and I watched my private messages on every social media platform blow up with people who felt so deeply alone, didn't know anyone else was dealing with it. And I had felt so alone. I didn't talk to people. I didn't know any anyone I felt like I could turn to. My friend who had told me that she was sober, we talked a couple times on the phone. She was great. But, you know, it was just a very lonely experience. And that was really the moment in which I started to realize there's a whole space of healing. And it's these other people like me who are right now suffering alone like I suffered. And... I want to create a world where we don't do that alone, where we know that other people are there to hold space for us and to care for us. And if that needs to be my story, if my story needs to be what happens in order for people to not go through what I went through, I'm willing to tell it. It's really, really powerful, Erin. And I mean, it's, I am, I resonate so deeply with what you're sharing of, you know, wanting other people to know they're not alone because it just, it seems like our, our human brain tells us this lie all the time that we're alone. Nobody understands. Um, and yet, as soon as we share our story, there's always people that reach out and say, oh my goodness, thank you much for, so much for sharing. I thought I was the only one. I thought I was alone. And it just is this amazing point of connection when we are willing to be vulnerable and share like you did. Yes. And I, and I say this not lightly, it fully changed the trajectory of my life. Um, mm. I realized that there was this need and, and that I was 
oddly called into it, right? Mm-hmm. It isn't that I started working on a business plan. It was that I just was like, whatever this is, this DM thing, this is what I think I was created for. Wow. And it is unsurprising to me that, you know, it was my vulnerability and my storytelling and me sharing the thing I swore to God I would never say that then became what led me into a world in which that list has come true. Wow. Like, except for the fact, except for the fact that I wrote on there that I wanted to be like happily partnered, everything else on the list is true. And, 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 you know, my thing is that's not my fault. Okay. That requires another person's agency. So I cannot be blamed for that. So literally in a way that is absurd. I mean, I think about that list. I don't have the list anymore, which I just hate for myself, but like, I remember kind of what the gist was when all of it is true. Mm-hmm. And of course, vulnerability and like sharing the thing I didn't want to say was the passageway into that joy. But what a gift for it to now be something that in sharing it has helped other people find theirs. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. One of the things that it, it, I want to say it's unique in what I'm hearing you say, and maybe I've heard other people say it and it just hasn't you know, kind of struck me in the same way. But when you talk about one's relationship with alcohol, that just seems to be a unique phrase that seems really powerful and intriguing. And like, really, it pauses me to think and it's like, oh, wow, what an interesting way to look at. It's not just I drink or I don't drink. um, But but what is my relationship with alcohol? What is one's relationship with alcohol? So where did that phrase come from? I mean, talk more about that because it just seems really pivotal. I'm laughing because I, you know, I went through all this, like, what are we going to name the book? And we were tinkering with the subtitle and the publishers were like, relationship with alcohol needs to stay because that is something that I don't think is, is talked about a lot. And because of the language that I use quite often, I don't think of it as being that different, but they're like, no, no, we need to keep that because it is different. And mm-hmm. um, an image that I, that I use sometimes to talk about this um, is, so let's, let's say that you uh, have uh, a friend, really close friend, and because of your schedules, uh, you meet maybe once a month, right? You have this like standing coffee date where you get together, you gab, you chat. Uh, now think of a relationship in which uh, it's a little bit more intimate. Maybe you're meeting once a week, right? You have this like Friday night, we get together and we do board games or whatever, right? So you have this other friendship about once a week. But let's say you then also have this this other friend, maybe it's a partner, maybe it's someone else, you know, someone else in your life, but you get together with them every single day, right? And you see them every single day. Now I want you to imagine in all these different types of relationships that that person disappears. They're no longer in your life. Even if that person was someone you only saw once a month, it's going to leave a gap, right? Mm-hmm. You're going to think, oh man, this is a person that we talked about our lives together. You know, we, we had this standing day. Now think about a person you see once a week. You know, your Thursdays are going to be different now, right? Whatever that day was, you're going to think, oh man, I used to hang out with so-and-so. I just, I'm grieved that they've moved. And I know you, you move around a lot and so you understand how these relationships hold a profound amount of grief. Right Definitely. now, we can imagine that it's someone that you see every single day. We it doesn't matter if you drink once a month. Doesn't matter if you drink once a week. Doesn't matter if you drink every day. The way that that leaving is going to affect you is going to be fairly profound, right? Because we have a relationship with alcohol. It's something that was at possibly was at our wedding. It was uh, the way that we celebrated our birthday for thirty years. It was. It has been a part of pivotal moments in our lives. And I think it's important to at least honor what it, where it is in our lives in order to then say, and, and I don't know that, that it being in those places is serving me. And by understanding it as a relationship, there, there is a, an inferred mindfulness around it, right? You, you can't never speak to your friends ever and then also meet up with them. Right, like you have to have some conversations and chatting, some some relationship there, and there's mindfulness in that. That's oh, when, when are we going to get together next month? What's that going to look like? Where are we going to meet? Your house, my house, who's going to be there? And alcohol has really become a mind less 
activity, something we don't put any attention around. Mm. And it's that mindlessness that I think means that even sometimes without our intentionality, it ends up sliding into the space of coping or we already have a pattern, sort of like what happened to me. I already was a drinker. Trauma hit. I'm not explicitly thinking I'm going to go home every night and drink because I don't want to feel my trauma, but I'm certainly coming home exhausted, depleted. My body is in a state of trauma and I don't want to feel that. I want to calm my nervous system. So I drink this depressant because my body has realized that it can do for that and it's created dependence, right? Mm-hmm. And we don't need necessarily to not be mindful about it. And yet we often aren't. Mm. And so understanding this is a relationship. It requires tending, nurturing, conversation. Um, also, you know, do we want to spend time with some people every single day of our lives? I think we often would say some of my friends, they're once a monthers. Yeah. You know, I love them dearly, <laughs> but they're once a monthers. You know, and, and I mean, I can't even think of a person in my life with a once a monther, but you know what I mean? Like, we yep. choose like, oh, my partner, I'll see you every single day. That sounds delightful. And yet there, we have plenty of not partners that we've not chosen to see every day. And so yep. even asking yourself, you know, is alcohol a once a weeker? Is it is it a every day? What what is the way that I that I want this to be enforced in my life? So it's a really long, complex answer, but I do think it is that complex. I I, I appreciate that, and I really like the metaphor of the relationships and and in the fact that yes, I have friends that I see l- less than one once a month, right? With the way that my life is, and I move all around the world, and yet if those friends are not there, when I go home and I get to see them once a year, I'm still going to miss them. And and I love, like, I mean, I think it just gives an interesting perspective of having a connection with alcohol. And, and that is the reality of this substance for a whole variety of reasons and, and unique for, for probably each person. Um, but then moving into the mindfulness and realizing that so many can get into just kind of a habit, a pattern of consuming alcohol mindlessly. And what what does it look like even just to shift it first to, to mindfulness is really powerful. It's powerful and incredibly difficult, right? When I think of making life less difficult, I'm like, this is one of the difficulties. Yeah. And, um, you know, in my work, it's so interesting because one of the things I actually really love about recovery coaching is the way that it allows me to use my mind because of the fact that there is no five-step plan. Like I can't say step one is this, step two is this, because each individual person has a different relationship with alcohol. I mean, to to maybe overuse the metaphor, you know, marriage counseling isn't going to be the same for two couples. Right. They're going to have different dynamics of play. And in my work, there's going to be different triggers. There's going to be different sort of wounds from childhood that might be evoked. I have some people that are like, my danger zone is when I'm at home alone. And I have other people who are like, my danger zone is when I get invited to go out. And, mm-hmm. and the tools that we need to put around those challenges are vastly different. Mm-hmm. And I also do a lot of work with the, the people that I work with around, you know, for some people, something might be motivating, like for instance, day counting, being like, I love seeing the app give me another day, right? Mm-hmm. For other people, day counting can be demotivational because yeah. there's this internal fear that, oh, but then if I drink, I go back to zero and I've lost all of this, right? Yes. And so even that is not necessarily what's going to help people. And so I'm trying to get at, okay, what is motivational for this person? What is demotivational for this person? So that I, I don't trigger something that then sends them into some of the shame cycles that will actually drive them to drink. And mm-hmm. so it's this interesting puzzle of me just like mm-hmm. putting all of this together and then also um, rolling with the punches. You know, I do these four-week packages only every week and we get to say, help me through that week what came up and people will tell me their week and they'll say you know I don't know what happened on Thursday but I just drank and I'll be like 
And then I'll say, well, what was Thursday like? And they're like, well, my mom called me and we had this horrible fight. And I'm like, well, I think we know what happened on Thursday, right? Like there was a wound that was hurt. And so let's put care, let's put boundaries around that relationship, whatever we need to do. So that if it happens again, we know we're prepared and we're centered. And also we're grace with ourselves. But literally someone poked the greatest wound in your life. And so the fact that you needed to cope with that is nothing to be ashamed of. Instead, let's not be ashamed of that. And let's instead have a little kit of other coping mechanisms ready mm-hmm. for you the second that name pops up on your phone, right? Mm-hmm. Because when we're in the trigger, that's not the time to be gathering tools, right? Mm-hmm. We're going to use what's most accessible to us. And I mm-hmm. use that just as an example to say that, you know, that intuitive work is something that I really love doing because it does, I think, reflect the reality of the fact that you know, I think if I could sell a five-step plan, you know, I'd be a millionaire, but there is no five-step plan for changing this, not only internally, but also culturally and in our broader society around where we place alcohol in it. Yeah. I I love that customized approach because, um, I mean, and obviously there's kind of the more quote unquote traditional AA 12-step programs and, and they're effective for some people. And and they're not effective for some people. So for those that don't find the the traditional 12-step programs to be what meets their needs, for there to be a highly customized approach, I think it's it's really important because our, our world loves to have a simple answer to things. And so it's like, oh well, okay, here's AA. Obviously, this will solve anybody's problem who wants to get sober. And and wouldn't it be lovely if it was that straightforward and simple? And yet we're so complex as humans and each of our journeys is unique and complex. And, and it's wonderful that something might work, you know, for, for many, many people. And yet what, it, what's the alternative for those that it, it doesn't work. So I really love how you describe that. And, it, and to me, it just honors the individuals and the complexity of each individual and their story and their journey and their uniqueness. Well, good. I mean, I'm glad that it reflects that because that's the heart of my work. I do want to clarify that I I said five step plan. I was not actually dragging AA. Um, I because they do offer a twelve step plan. Um, but I when I read AA, I mean, there actually is a lot of space in it, right? So like the way that you do amends might be different from someone else. So there there is actual intuitive work that is done in AA. I meant more like a five-step weight loss program, like the sort of, you know, we can get you fit in X amount of days, which is not the posture that AA takes. No. So I do just want to want to clarify that because I did not go down the AA path, but AA saves people's lives, right? Absolutely. Like it, it does really good work. It is for plenty of people the path into their healing. I think what I want to, to always champion is, that there always be a path into healing for every single person. Yeah. And for some people, that's going to look like AA. For other people, it's not. And I just mm-hmm. want to, to make sure that the paths that are helpful for each individual person are available. Yeah, absolutely. I'd love to go back for a moment. And, you know, when we were talking about shifting from the mindless relationship with alcohol, the mindless consumption, um, shifting to a mindfulness. Um, and, and you mentioned like, that's difficult. Um, what, what made it less difficult for you and what, what do you offer for others to make just that initial shift from mindlessness to mindfulness around alcohol? What, what can make that less difficult? A great question. Uh, there's lots of different practices you can try. I mean, one of the maybe most vulnerable practices, so I may not suggest starting with it, but I think giving yourself the the grace to do reflective work. I think, you know, when I look into, you know, my, my very mindless relationship with alcohol, you don't want to spend the time like because you're ashamed and you feel like shit and you're like, you don't want to sit down and think through what happened last? What, you know, why did I drink X amount of drink? You don't want to do that. Again, it's the most vulnerable first step, so you might not want to pick it. But 
being willing to kind of look back, see when could I have thought were there opportunities when maybe I had a choice. Because I've also looked back and thought about how, you know, there are plenty of times that I could have been like, well, we're all done and I'm going to go home. And then someone's like, what if we got another round? And I could have just said, no, I could have said, I'm actually quite tired. I'm going to go to bed, but I didn't. And so maybe gently ask yourself, what were the, my invitations to end earlier? What was at play there, right? Um, what were my emotions? Was I lonely? Was it, was it, what was happening for me? What was my day like? That kind of just, uh, I always say like archaeological. Like we're mm-hmm. just dusting. We're just seeing what comes up, what artifacts begin to emerge, but we're just dusting around mm-hmm. to see to see the edges of things. And another practice that I use in my coaching practice uh, with the people I work with is, you know, this isn't true for everyone, but for many people who are trying to change their relationship with alcohol, they have what's called a witching hour, right? Mm-hmm. It's the time when we are most triggered. It's when we just have that that desire and that desire has become mindless over time right and again not everyone but for a lot of people it's the second they get home from work mm. because we've got a lot of things happening here we've got I'm exhausted I'm tired I've got the frustrations of the day the built-up stress of the day I also want a reward for making it through that rough day right um so so we pour a drink and, um, you know, for, for some of my, my people, my first thing is just, what if when you got home from work, you made a mocktail? Mm. What if just the first thing you had was a non-alcoholic beverage? But it has to be a really good non-alcoholic beverage. Yes. Because I'll talk to people and they're like, you know, I had my non-alcoholic beverages and I didn't drink them. And I, and I just went back to alcohol. And I'm like, well, what was your non-alcoholic beverage? And they were like, they're like, uh, lime sparkling water. And I'm like. She's not good enough. Like that is not delicious enough. You need something that rivals in taste and desirability the thing that you're craving, right? Mm-hmm. Because I believe, you know, when you have a craving, scratch the itch, but not with alcohol, mm-hmm. right? Like definitely put something, meet that craving with something. Just don't want to be alcohol. And um, for many people, you know, they're not necessarily trying to quit drinking. And so I'm like, if you decide later you want to have a glass of wine at dinner, we're not shaming that, but we're getting you out of that mindless mm. this, uh, routine of every day I start drinking at five, every day I start drinking at six. Or I have people who say, you know, my bitching hour is five to seven. And I'm like, okay, so what if we put activities on your day, five to seven, right? Just to give you a little bit of distraction, you know, if you were already going to have to run some errands, let's put those errands on your witching hour so that you're just going to kind of get through it a little bit. Mm. Or the other day, I was talking to a client who said, you know, my witching hour is five to seven and I, you know, we're going to dinner and I'm nervous, but I'm going to like be at this really nice restaurant during my witching hour. And like one of our tools was what if your reservation was at 730? Wow. What if you just, you know, maybe you're still going to have a drink, right? We're not shaming that. But what if we just made sure you aren't at a really nice restaurant with really delicious beverages during your most vulnerable time? And what I find and what my clients find is even if all you do is delay when you start, that's just naturally going to mean that you drink, right? It's naturally going to mean that you drink. You start drinking at five versus starting drinking at seven, that's already reduced your harm, right? It's already meant that you're going to drink less. And it's a step. And it's also begun to create a different ritual, which is that you still come home and have a beverage. It doesn't happen to be alcohol. Mm. And I use that because it's so practical. I also have these clients who are now like really into their mocktails mm. because they're delicious and they scratch the itch and they don't make them feel the way they would feel if they started drinking at five. Yeah. So. Again, I, we, we certainly use other things for different people because different people have different needs. As I said, it's an intuitive work, but, but that's really a very, um, for those for whom that is their, their thing, I really trust that. Yeah, no, and it's great because it's so practical. I'm, I'm wondering, this is also a very practical question. It seems like there's better quality non-alcoholic beers and wines and even spirits that are being made 
Um, I mean, that seems like that could be also a practical solution, not, not, not solution. That's the wrong word, but just a, a way to make it less difficult as well. Are you finding that as a tool or what would you call it? That's a tool. I have an entire blog of all of my favorite. We can put it in show notes. Yes, let's do that. Um, I actually have a podcast on hiatus that is called Mocktail Hour. And we taste, you know, mocktails and good mocktail beverages because you're right. I mean, there was a world not too long ago where it was kind of like, oh, duels are bust, Mm -hmm. you know? And, and, and Odul's Amber is actually quite good. I do want to give that a shout out. Because I'm not <laughs> trying to drag Odul's and I'm grateful that we had anything. But we're in a world where, you know, I live in Austin, Texas. And like um, one of my clients that I've had for many years was in town. And we went out to this really cute, easy bar um, called the Roosevelt Room. I want to give a shout out to them. And the, the bartender, you know, I said to them, I was like, I don't drink. And they had mocktails on the menu, first of all, which is huge. Nice. But I said, a lot of them had like coconut cream in them or something. And I was like, I don't know how to say this. I just don't want something creamy. Mm. Like, I just would like a beverage that isn't creamy. And he pulled out like six different non-alcoholic spirits and did me like a fully, truly craft mocktail that isn't on the menu for me specifically based on my, my taste palette that I prefer. Wow. And it was just this incredible moment of being like, that is some intensely beautiful hospitality you've shown to me here. And that wasn't possible years ago. Mm. Um, athletic Brewery it makes non-alcoholic beer and it tastes so good. Mm-hmm. And um, I have friends who drink alcohol and also are like, you know, during the week, we got to work in the morning. We like to have a mocktail. We like to have an athletic because it tastes really good. Bitch and I feel great in the morning. And then maybe on the weekends, I'm going to go out with my friends and have a couple cocktails, right? Mm. But that's a mindful relationship with alcohol mm. as opposed to the way that it has been for a while. And so um, the other thing that's interesting is, you know, there are critics of drinking alcoholic beverages, people who, um, you know, in the recovery community think that you're just kind of subbing in mm. something else, that you're not really addressing the root issues and causes. Um, there's also uh, understandable critique of the fact that uh, there is a little bit of an alcohol content in a non-alcoholic beer. Um, also bitters, if you use bitters, I use bitters all the time in my non-alcoholic beverages, and they, uh, but you only use a splash, and so the actual amount of alcohol content does not affect me. Kombucha has a really low alcohol content because it's fermented. Mm-hmm. And for people, for me, like the chemical alcohol cannot touch your body because it has a very clear effect on you. I certainly would not recommend using that. It has not made me want to drink alcohol. It has actually helped me have really fun, joyful nights out and not drink. Mm-hmm. So as with everything, one tool is not right for every single person. Um, You can also get completely non-alcoholic bitters. So if that's something that you're like, I don't know about that, just go get some non-alcoholic bitters, uh, which this bar had. Roosevelt Room had non-alcoholic bitters. So it was like a 110% non-alcoholic beverage. So, um, you know, I do want to name that and honor that because for some people that could possibly be triggering. And we're, we're, we're trying to find good tools that help that person. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. So, Arandina, I'm going to ask you a question. It might be, it might, you might say, I can talk about it a little bit. Let's continue this in part two. Because, um, but, but I'm part a part two right now. Let's create the, the ecosystem for a part two. <laughs> I'm curious for you to talk a little bit about. Um, okay, so so the the question comes from thinking about my own journey. I grew up in a faith tradition where alcohol was forbidden. And I didn't actually start drinking alcohol until I was in my thirties. And I, um, I have no regrets. Like I hear stories of people binge drinking and throwing up in college. And I'm just like, I don't really feel like I missed out on that, but, but my critique of, and, and a lot of my friends in the same faith tradition were drawn to alcohol because it was forbidden. And there were no conversations around the potential consequences and you should be careful and mindful, right? There were no, none of those conversations because it was just bad. We don't talk about it. And I know that the, the various faith traditions within Christianity and um, expanding to other even world religions have differing effects. And some are like none, some are like have as much as you want. Like, 
But I'm curious, when I think about young people growing up and kids growing up and learning, because I think alcohol needs to be respected. And, and, and I sense like a major lack of it in the kind of place I came from. I see it continuing in certain religious circles. And I would just be curious, I'll stop talking now and just whatever, whatever you want to say around this. I, I think it's an interesting area. Um, I'm so interested in this that I that I'm trying to think is it one or two chapters in my book that just talks about this. Okay. Um, in part because you know I started with ordination. I was fundamentalist Baptist in Alabama for a very long time, okay. and so I actually uh, I, I was not raised in that church, but I became a Christian in my teens and joined a fundamentalist Baptist church. And was very shaped by the the same belief that I think you were taught, which is that alcohol is just evil and wrong. Right. Right, or just, um, I always think of the quote from Mean Girls about sex education, where he's like, don't have sex, you'll get pregnant and die, <laughs> plastic men. Like, that's his whole, that's the whole line. It's just like, don't do it. Yeah. Goodbye. Um, and that was essentially, it was just like, this is wrong, don't do it, yes. which is actually not mindfulness. Oh, right? Yeah. That is actually not mindfulness at all. And it does stigmatize those who then end up having challenges with it, even though you know, that those challenges might be caused by exterior sources, access to care, et cetera. So I actually think that doesn't work, right? But then I became a Episcopalian. So I moved into a church that in many regards has an attitude of being a, quote, drinking church. Interesting. In which we're not like those fundamentalists, right? Because a lot of converts come into the church from fundamentalism. We're not like those teetotalers. We like to have a good time. I think of the quote, like, I love Jesus, but I drink a little, which is on shirts and everything, right? And so it is an identity in a lot of, uh, of parts of the Episcopal Church. And that doesn't work either, right? Like that leads directly into mindlessness also. And so I think that in all things, you know, I seek a middle way. I think how can we not demonize people who drink because that's not helpful? And also, how do we begin to form, you know, you're, you were talking about like youth, right? Like how do we begin to form youth with a knowledge of the harm it can cause? How do we, how do we start at that earliest age with mindfulness practices yes. um, so that they don't end up sort of in their adulthood thinking, wow, no one's ever, ever helped for me in this. And spirituality, oddly, can become an incredible tool for that. We just don't tend to use it that way. And so I fully agree with you, right? I also see the other end of the pendulum, like as it swings back and forth, which is alcohol is great. Let's do it. Jesus drank wine, so let's drink wine too. And I'm like, Jesus didn't drink wine like you do, (laughs) right? Like, this is not a a clear comparison. And also, at the end of the day, I mean – Something that I have been, you know, talking about and talk about in the book is 3.3 million people die annually due to alcohol. Wow. 3.3 million people globally die from alcohol. And that is a staggering statistic, yeah. right? And we need to reckon with that because out of care for ourselves and our children and these people in our lives, we, we've created a culture that, that is a culture that of death around them. Mm. And I just, as a person who believes in abundant life, I think there has to be a way into healing around this. And there has to be a way that, that again, I'm not going to demonize people for drinking, but I, I don't want those people to die. Yeah. I just don't want those people to die. Yeah. And, and some of them die from illnesses, which are extreme difficulties. If we're going to use the language of difficulty, like, Alcohol, when drunk mindlessly, creates profound difficulty in life. And there's got to be a way, you know, how do we make life less difficult? This is one of the ways to bring compassionate care, destigmatization of those who struggle with substances, and also a, a more mindful way for all of us. I think, you know, when I talk about coaching and stuff like that, I think every single person who drinks alcohol can seem to do a check-in, right? We're not telling you you have to get sober at the end of it, but what if it was like going to get a physical? What if we were just checking, essentially checking blood work and saying, how's this going? Oh, did it slide into a bit of a coping space? Well, let's work on just getting it. We'll just get it out of coping. Let's just be back to a place where 
you feel holistically better about it because we can certainly say everyone has to get sober, right? But that's not going to happen, I don't think. No. And it's not helpful to start there. What I want is for each individual person to feel good, to love themselves, to have nurtured relationships where they feel connected to other people. And it's to go back actually to the metaphor for mean girls. It's like sex, sex education. You can certainly just say, never have sex, you'll get pregnant and die. And it's not going to heal our, our challenge around this. We need to be mindful. We need to give options. We need to acknowledge that sex is going to happen. Same thing with alcohol. We need to be, we need to acknowledge that drinking is going to happen. And these are harm reduction principles. If you don't follow harm reduction, and I really, really love it. So definitely go look at that if you're interested. But that's really my approach to your question, which I've weaved into and out of, of like, no, I don't think the do not have sex, you will get pregnant and die route is helping anyone. Yeah. And I don't think creating a culture in which in which mindless drinking of alcohol is glorified and also an identity marker does anything other, both of them. They both participate in this challenge that we have in our in our world. Yeah. Yes. And I, I think the idea of being mindful about our relationship with alcohol could be expanded to so many different areas in life. Um, so we definitely need to continue this conversation in part two. Um, you know, I'm also just really, it stood out in your, as you were sharing here in the last few minutes, connecting back to your story at the beginning about how it was when you realized that talking negative about yourself and hating on yourself didn't get you to that place of wanting to change. It was when you realized you want to love yourself. You want to be able to fulfill this beautiful list. And I think that's just so powerful, right? Because that's that that shift away from the I'm bad, got to try to fix myself to no, like really, I want to step into this place of love and acceptance and let go of the shame is I think that we don't, I speak for myself that I, I did not grow up learning how powerful that is. And I feel like I am, I am learning. It is an active thing that I am learning how much more motivational that outlook is versus the beat myself up, hate on myself of focusing on no, like, here's what I really want to do. Here's, I, I want to be loving. I want to be self-compassionate. And I want to do all these cool things. And so, um, yeah, the motivation there is is really powerful. Yes, I, uh, I'll circle back to Arianne Rice. The reason I mm. know her is that we did the Daring Way program with Brene Brown. And um, shame resilience really undergirds all of my work, whether it's recovery coaching or spiritual direction, because shame always sends us toward that sort of negative coping space, it never helps us get out. And so um, I think, you know, it's really hard to think of it this way, but like the root of this work is always self-compassion. And again, I say, I thought it was bullshit until it worked. Like I'm not your self-compassion <laughs> girl. Like I did not start there and I still, I still roll my eyes at it. Like I still roll my eyes when someone tells me to be kind of myself. And also, I know the revolutionary power that happens when we step out of that shame space. So yeah. um, again, I just always want everyone to know, I am also rolling my eyes, but I'm going to tell you to try it because it does work. And I, I don't do it as much as I, as I probably would like to. So I, I like to say to people, I'm only sharing with you things I'm working on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a journey, right? And it's a practice, right? It's something we have to continue to practice and develop. So, um, Erin I, if someone's listening and they want to reach out to you, I'm going to put connections in the, in the show notes. And, and you mentioned a few specific blogs, um, would love for people to know where to access your book when that is available. Um, but what's the best way? And, and first of all, I should ask, are you okay if people reach out to you? And then what is the best way for them to reach out to you? Yes, uh, I am okay with it. My email is a red hot mess right now. And so if I don't respond to you, it is not a personal attack on you. Um, so the best way to get in touch with me, um, I do have followers on my or Twitter and Instagram. I'd love for you to follow along. 
I don't spend much time in those DMs just because they've become overwhelming over time and something that I just, I, I, I don't check it as much as I should. Um, but there's a contact uh, form on my email if you want to reach out about possibilities of coaching together or um, ask a question or something like that. Please use that contact form. It goes to my email and again, have some grace with me on the turnaround time, but I do respond to them. It takes a minute. Um, I also have a subtract and uh, I do a weekly email newsletter that is uh, um, contemplation, reflection based. So it gives you a quote and I write a reflection and I give you some practices and some thoughts to reflect on. So uh, that in and of itself is a resource for people, or at least I try to create that to be a resource for people. And then I also, within the Substack, I have a, a paid community. It's only $7 a month. So it's, you know, uh, hopefully a fairly low hanging fruit offer. And we're about to start a book club. And I think we're just going to keep doing book clubs on there where you get a weekly written reflection and a comment section to chime in. Nice. Um, we're about to read 40 Days with Howard Thurman, who is one of my favorite mystics. Um, he was a civil rights leader. He was a huge inspiration to Martin Luther King wow. as he went forward to do his work. So uh, love his work and we'll be dwelling on that over the next, uh, starting in July. So really Twitter, Instagram, my website and my Substack are the ways to get in touch. And I'd love to hear from people. And um Again, if you can have grace with me on response, I, 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 I would love to hear from you. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for your generosity and sharing your story. And I, I'm 100% uh, sincere when I say let's continue this and have part two. Yes. Amen.